Well, good morning, friends. It is good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, great things going on here at West Bowl. So glad you're a part of it, especially if it's your first time with us. Maybe your first time in a long time. Uh, God is doing great things. We had over 50 people in our new members class this morning, so that was exciting. Lots of new family members coming around the church. Uh, so if you're interested in maybe being a more intricate part of this church, using your talents and your gifts uh, in, in very interesting ways uh, and in really fun ways, we would love to have you be a part of that. Uh, let me pray this morning for us as we dive into our sacred letter series. Lots to talk about, uh, some exciting things to share with you. So let's go ahead and, and pray over that. God, would you speak to us now? I love what Nathan said before, Father. Sometimes it's so easy throughout the week to lose focus, to lose sight of what's really important, who's really in charge, and what this life is all about. We tend to look inward or we look at all the problems that we're dealing with. And so this morning we ask for a new perspective. We ask that we would see you again, that you would help bring clarity to everything that we're going through. We ask that you would speak to us as well. Would your Holy Spirit now infuse this space and would you speak to us words of life, words of power, words that change us, our families, our neighborhoods, our community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, with Halloween coming up, I thought uh, with all the creepy, crawly, gross things that go along with that holiday, the best way to start our time off this morning was with some, with some gross object lessons. So, who doesn't love a gross object lesson, right? So first, just a plain old glass of orange juice. It's high pulp. My wife thinks that's gross, but I love, I love the high pulp stuff. So I'm just going to pour a nice big glass of orange juice, pure, freshly squeezed, minute-made high pulp orange juice, just to prove to you nothing's wrong with this. It's wonderful. High pulp. Love it. Most of you would drink this, would you not, if I gave it to you to drink? Maybe not after I drink it, but you would still drink that cup of orange juice. Things would change drastically, though. After I took out my bag of crickets, I bought these last night at Petco. They were alive, but something happened last night in the garage. And so I'm just going to go ahead and kind of pour these guys in there. All right. Oh, there's a few on the stool, too. Sorry, praise band. Um, things change drastically, though, don't they, when these little guys go in there? Chances are you wouldn't drink this now. This, this is pretty gross. But what's interesting is even if I put that orange juice through the best filtration system that's out there, if I ran it through a Brita, you know, water filtration thing, chances are you still wouldn't drink it. Chances are that orange juice now in your eyes and in your mind is always just going to be ewy and gross, right? That's the first. All right, the second is Gatorade. Who doesn't love just the good old thing of Gatorade? Again, prove to you, just pure Gatorade, love it. Mm. Excellent. Is it in you? That's the question. But you see, thing, things drastically change with this Gatorade. Most of you, again, would drink this if I gave it to you right now. But if I asked you to drink it out of this, <laughs> want a sip? <laughs> see, things change pretty drastically now, right? The container makes all the difference in the world. That, that lovely le le yellow lemonade or whatever it was goes to being something pretty yucky, pretty gross. Let me give you another example. Suppose I asked you to come to my house with me and we went downstairs to the basement. I said, you've got to come and see some of my grandfather's World War II memorabilia. He's got all these different items and trinkets, and one of them is actually this sweater. I take this sweater out of the box and I say, you won't believe it. This sweater, my grandpa got it a few, you know, a few days after the war was over. I don't know how he came across it, but it's amazing. It's our best piece of memorabilia. This sweater belonged to Hitler himself. This sweater was actually on the shoulders of that man a week before he committed suicide. Hasn't been washed. You can still smell the man in this sweater. See the pit stains? I mean, this sweater. And I turn and I ask, 
Want to try it on? How many of you would put the sweater on? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I'm not sure how you would answer the question, but research has shown that most people refuse to put this sweater on. See, each of these things come from disgust psychologists. Yes, there's such a thing out there as disgust psychologists. Imagine if your 18-year-old came home and said, Mama, majoring in disgust psychology. <laughs> okay, honey, great. But disgust psychologists have done all these different experiments with different groups of people, and this sweater one in particular, people refuse to try the sweater on. They refuse to drink the orange juice. They refuse to touch the bedpan. And in fact, with the sweater, they refuse to even be in proximity to it. They think something is so evil and so disgusting about the sweater, they get a little bit anxious when they're even in close contact with it. All these illustrations and activities, in one way or another, revolve around the concept of disgust. And they prove that two things are true. Two things are real. Two things happen in our life, whether we're even aware of it or not. The first is this. We believe that once something has been contaminated, it will always be contaminated. No matter how many times we clean it, no matter how many times we purify it or wash it, in our minds, once we have come to the realization and the conclusion that something is gross, no matter what you do to this something, the juice will always remain gross. Once contaminated, always contaminated. But a second truth has come out of all this research, and it is this. We believe that if we come into contact with something that's been contaminated, we ourselves will become contaminated. It seems as if we're hardwired to think that when we touch something dirty, we become dirty. If we're around something that stinks, we'll start to stink. If we embrace something that's tainted, we will become tainted. And thus, we do our best to separate ourselves from such things. Once contaminated, always contaminated. And if I touch it, I'll get contaminated. Are you with me so far? Think about the number one news story that's been out there this week. Ebola. Think about how this adds to this fear factor, doesn't it? Well, such and such nurse was in close proximity with someone who was contaminated. She got it. And then wouldn't you know what a second nurse got it? Oh, and by the way, all 700 people who were on your flight to Cleveland and back, now you're kind of in danger too. Once contaminated, always contaminated. And if you get too close, watch out or you'll get contaminated. It's an interesting, a fascinating study. Now, what does this have to do with being a Christian? Nothing. I just think this is kind of fun to have these things up here, actually. Just wanted to see if anybody would drink it. I think this has everything to do with Christianity. I think it has everything to do with our faith. Because you see, the way that we interact with uh, cricket-infused orange juice or bedpans filled with yellow fluids or gross sweaters is the same way we typically think and interact with evil and sin. So the way we process and think about those things is the same way we process and think about evil and sin. But take it one step further. The way we process and think about those things is the same way we process and think about evil and sinful people. See, our disgust psychology transcends the objects and it moves into the human realm. And that's a major problem. See, whether we recognize it or not, we believe that the sin of others, the imperfection of others, the gross or disgusting qualities of others will somehow spread onto us. And so because we think that they're contaminated and always will be, we better watch out or will be contaminated. Think about certain groups of people. Groups like the handicapped, the homeless, the dirty, the elderly, those who are living in extreme sin, those with deformities. Think about those groups of people. Do we not typically look at them in the same way we look at the orange juice or the bedpan? 
Do we not typically look at them as if something is wrong with them? That their impurities are gross and ewy and they will somehow get on us if we're not careful. And not just us. See, if we're not careful, their grossness, their imperfections will come into the church. And if we're not careful when it comes into the church, it'll somehow contaminate God. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? It sounds totally overboard. That's how most people think. If I come too close to something that's contaminated, I'll get it. And then if I get it, everybody around me will get it. And so I better just stay as far away as possible. And the fact that we think that way, the fact that we act that way, that's a major problem. Because the one in whose name we gather, the one in whose name we want to carry on as our own, the one in who we're trying to be like and follow and emulate, Jesus Christ, he didn't live that way at all. It was just the opposite. He saw things like this, he was like, Yummy. Let's have a drink. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew 25, 31 through 45 says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. He's in charge. And he and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when? When did we see you in all these ways? When did we see you hungry or feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will simply reply, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The story continues. He says, then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, and go into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. And they'll say, Lord, when did we not do those things for you? When did we not help you out? And he'll simply say this. Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then in Matthew 9, he says this. When Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, a lot of contaminated, yucky, gross people were sitting there eating with him and the disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with people like that? Why does he drink that juice? Why does he pick up the bedpan? Why does he have that sweater on? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the health that need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, in both of these passages, I mean, there's dozens of others that we could have read as well. Jesus calls his people, his followers, his disciples, into a life of inclusion, embrace, service, and hospitality. And not just with people that look like, think like, or smell like you. In fact, it's just the opposite. He calls his followers to reach out to, befriend, touch, serve, and love those whom others wouldn't, whom others refused to, whom others were disgusted by, whom others thought were gross and dirty and contagious. I mean, look at the list in Matthew 25. God will judge us and separate us based upon our treatment of this group of people, the hungry, the homeless, the naked, the sick, and the incarcerated. How well are you doing loving this group of people? 
Does this describe your friend group? Does this describe your sphere of influence? Most of us respond to, to, to a group like this or people like this. Ew! Ewy! Yuck! Gross. And so we erect walls, we put up fences, we put up gates, we walk on the other side of the street, we don't go into certain parts of town, we avoid the hospital, we drive past the prison because those people are contaminated. And once contaminated, always contaminated. And if I get too close, I'll become contaminated. See how disgust psychology transcends bedpans and orange juice? But this isn't a new way of thinking. This isn't a new problem. This isn't a 21st century dynamic. This happened in the first century as well. This group of guys right here, the preachers, the teachers, the priests, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they believed if you came into contact with a sick person, you got sick. Or if you came into contact with a sinful person, you became sinful yourself. I could go into a laundry list of details as to how they worked this out, but let me say it this way. Everything from PMS to PDA was not okay with them. They just separated themselves completely from folks dealing with either of those things. So they quarantined the lepers. They ostracized the women and the Gentiles. They banished the sick and the deformed. In fact, the Pharisees, that word means separated. The Hebrew word literally means separated. So for them, sanctification, being pure and holy and honoring God, equaled being separated from gross, dirty, disgusting things. Ew. But then Jesus comes on the scene, and he's a rabbi. He's kind of cut from the same cloth as those guys, and yet he draws closer to them. He invites in the least of these. He hangs out with those on the margins and on the fringes and those living in the dark. He embraces and touches the sickest of the sick and the dirtiest of the dirty. Woman with the bleeding problem, come on over here. Let's hang out. You can touch me if you want. Man who's leprous, whose skin is literally falling off, come on over, I want to touch you. Man who's blind, if I touch you, I won't become blind, I will bring you healing. It's amazing. You see, when Jesus comes on the scene, he proves to us that a new day has come. No longer do you have to worry about them making you sick or sinful. Now your focus is on them becoming more like the Savior. It's a complete role reversal. It's a complete Power play, the flow of power has been completely reversed and it's a revolutionary reversal. The Pharisees never once thought, if I come into contact with these things, I can clean them up. I can help be used by God to clean them up. Instead, they were worried they were gonna dirty them up. Make sense? And so they separated themselves. And Jesus comes and he says, drink it up. Get in close. They won't dirty you up. You can clean them up. Your contact with sinful, gross, yucky people might actually have a purifying, redemptive, cleansing effect on those people. Instead of them making him unclean, Jesus has the power to make everybody else clean. It's incredible. And that's why I think on two separate occasions, Jesus says what he did. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When you say something twice, you really want them to get it, right? Most of us just talk, we're kind of talking heads. We say a lot of things. We don't exactly remember what we said. I forgot what I said before, right? We're just filling in the air, filling up wasted, empty downtime. But when you say something twice, you really want, did you hear me? I want to make sure you got this. Jesus says it twice, Matthew 9 and Matthew 12. But why does he say it twice? What is he wanting us to hear? What is he wanting us to get as he quotes this Hosea passage? Well, I think it all boils down to how you understand purity, how you understand devotion, how you understand what God wants from you. It's so easy to make our Christianity 
and our relationship with God, our understanding and expression of purity and devotion, just this vertical, one-way type of transactional approach between us and God. It's heavily based on rule-keeping, external purity, and personal piety. That's what the Pharisees had done. That's what they were known for. They had come to understand what God ultimately wants from you is for you to look good, feel good, and be good. You look good? I look pretty good today. This was professionally dry cleaned like that, poppy top, right? I look good, yeah. Do I feel good? Yeah, my conscience is pretty clean. I mean, there was that thing last week, but I'm not going to get into details. Am I good? I'm a pastor. Of course I'm good. It's my job to be good. Do I look good? Do I feel good? Am I, am, I, am, I, am I good? Am I acting good? Am I being good? And Jesus comes on the scene and says, God, it's not about that at all. Those things aren't important to me, but, 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 but of such smaller scale than you are making them. I'm not interested in you looking good, feeling good, or being good. I want you to actually do good. This is what he says to the Pharisees. Woe to you, pastors, preachers, teachers of the law. You're hypocrites. You give a tenth of the easy stuff. You give a couple bucks, but you, you neglect the most important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Woe to you, you Pharisees, you preachers, you pastors. You're hypocrites. You're clean on the outside of the cup, but you're full of greed on the inside. Wow. Look good, feel good, be good. No, Jesus said it's not about that at all. It's about doing good. He wants a purity, amen to that, but he wants a purity that doesn't shun people, but that serves people. He wants a holiness that doesn't revolve around separation, but sympathy. He wants devotion. It's not a matter of clean hands, but a compassionate heart. The time and the need for separation, he says, is over. I have come, and with me has come an entirely new day, a new flow of power. See, for Jesus, it's not so much what you do, it's for whom you do it for. Now, just stay with me just for a second. A sacrifice. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What does he mean by that? A sacrifice is something that you owe God, something you do to God. Again, this transactional model. I owe you something, God, so I'm going to give you something. Here's my sacrifice. It's all about me and you. My eyes are really on me more often than not. That's a sacrifice. Mercy takes my eyes off of here and here and here, and it extends it here. See, I can offer my sacrifice and think I'm done because the transaction is complete. But mercy, what happens with mercy? I can't ever stop extending it, right? I extended it to you, so now I'm done. No, extend mercy to you and to you and you. And, oh, I want mercy, he says. I want you to take your eyes off of this, this limited relationship you have with the Lord, and I want you to open your eyes to the relationships you have with everybody else. Mercy isn't about you. Sacrifices are. I want you to give mercy and not worry about sacrifices. Take your eyes off of you and put them on everybody else. That's what I think Jesus meant when he said what he did, these words up above us. What's most important, God? What do you really want us to do? What will make God happy? Jesus, what do you think? What's your answer to those questions? Love God with your whole being. Give him all of you. And the second is like it. The second, what are you talking about? There's only normally one answer to that question. The second, yeah, the second is like it. The second is so connected to it, you can't separate them. The second is how you do the first and love other people. See, we're serious about this, but if we're really serious about this phrase, we gotta take the other people seriously. It's not just about us and God. It's about us and others. 
If you want to honor God, then staying true to the law, that's good. But showering God's children with love is far better. Let me say that again. If you want to honor God, staying true to the law is good, but showering his children with love is far better. Parents, you'll understand this. When somebody loves my kids really well, it's as if they're loving me, right? When you love Bailey and Cassie, when you take them under your care, when you show them concern, when you're gentle gentle and tender and give them large sums of money, it's like you're loving me. (laughs) We had a family out at Pepperdine and and three kids, similar age to our girls, and they spent a lot of time together. And they loved those girls. They loved our girls so much. They prayed with them. They fed them. They drove them around town. They took them to different events. They loved them so much. I personally didn't get to spend a lot of time with this family, but I didn't have to. They were loving me. How? By loving my kids. See, I actually actually didn't need love from them. My kids did. And so the best way that family could love me was actually by loving my girls. And I wonder if the same thing can't be said of God and his children, especially those who are lost, those who have found themselves covered with crickets or in a bedpan, those who are covered in sin and shame and have been secluded. What if the best way for us to love God, what if the most important way for us to love God is by loving his kids, by loving his children? What if that's what he wants from us now? See, guys, we got to come to terms with this. God doesn't need anything from us. The songs we sing to him, he enjoys them. And I think it adds to the chorus of heaven that's always singing. But he doesn't need our praise. It's not as if he needs us to worship. That's a good expression. That's a good exercise for us. And our gifts and our offerings, our talents, he doesn't need those. The whole earth is his, it says. What does he need from me? He doesn't need anything from you. I don't need to offer you a sacrifice, God. He says, enough of those. I got enough of those. You know who's in need? My kids. Stop trying to love me because you're not loving me. I don't need anything from you. The way you love me is by loving my kids. Oh, it changes everything, doesn't it? That changes everything. This week, it was very scary for me to realize nowhere in the gospel does Jesus put on a worship service. Like, talk about freaking out about job security. Like, no, tell me you put a worship service together at some point. He never did. Now he gathered people. I could, I could try to prove to you I need a job still, but you know what he did a lot? Cared for people. He loved people. Showed concern for people. We've got a lot of instances of that and not a lot of instances of this. Now, we don't stop doing this, but why do we do this? Why do we gather? Why do we sing? Why do we give? It's not just because it's us and God. It's because we need to remind ourselves, who else are you serving now? Do you have the strength? Do you have the energy? Are you reminded of? Are you empowered to go out and help God's kids this week? That's why we do what we do. Worship doesn't seem to be mostly about liturgy or ritual or worship or even preaching. It's about meeting needs. You're closest to God, not when you're up in the hills in some monastic retreat all by yourself. You're closest to God when you're in the middle of the mess of the world. Some of you would disagree with that, and I understand. Go ahead and send me an email. That's fine. I'll delete it. But... But see, I know that God doesn't mind messes. Actually, he wants you to be in the mess. Just look at the incarnation. Look at Jesus becoming a man. Most holy of gods, taking on flesh. Stinky, smelly, sweaty, bloody flesh. And then he's born in a dirty city amongst dirty animals and even dirtier people. 
What's he trying to prove to us? Stop separating yourself from the problems in this world. Stop separating yourself from the evil in this world. Stop separating yourself from the sin in this world and enter into it. That's how you will be pure, and that's how they will come to be pure. Isn't that amazing? You seek purity and holiness to help others out of it. See, we need to make sure that we understand that. I'm not saying don't be pure like, Woo! My pastor said I got a license to be as evil as I want this week. No. You need to seek purity because if you're stuck in the mud, if you're covered in crickets and lying in a bedpan, I'm not sure if these analogies work anymore, but I'm trying to make them. If, if you're in that condition, you're no good to the world, right? If you're just adding crickets to the world, if you're just adding yellow fluid to the bedpan, you're no good to the world. That's why you need to separate yourself from those things. But once you're separated from those things, if you don't enter back in and help others separate themselves from those things, you're no good to God. You're no good to the world if you're just all yucky, 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 but you're no good to God if you don't go help and befriend and serve other yucky, yucky, yucky. I I don't know if I can make complete sense of it. I'm trying. This is a tough teaching that Jesus gives to us here. Jesus shows us that purity and holiness are not achieved primarily through separation, but now through sympathy. And that sympathy is what makes you stand out. Right? Holiness means set apart. And we think set apart means perfect and, and looks good, feel good, be good. No, God says what will set you apart is you actually care for other people because no one else in this world does. What will make you holy, what will make you like God is if you care genuinely for the yuckiest of the yuck. That will make you pure and holy. Whoa. So how do we get there? How do we get there? How do, you, how do you overcome your fear? How do you beca- overcome disgust psychology? How do you go from, from being afraid of these things to engaging and drinking these things? How do you make mercy the ultimate rule in your life? How do you make others the primary focus of your life and not just this or this? Well, I think what we have to do is just go back to those original teachings. Go back to those two discussed psychology truths that have come out through all these studies. Go back and undo the things that we know a lot of other people think. Remember the first one? Once contaminated, always contaminated. Christians say absolutely not to that teaching. We say there is no way on God's green earth that that is true. Actually, that's the furthest thing from the truth. It could be a glass of orange juice. More importantly, it could be a life wrecked by sin, totally covered in sin and shame and seclusion. And we know that Jesus can purify it. Amen? He can clean that life right up. He can make it new. He can give it life. He can give it health. No matter how ugly or gross or contaminated it was, Jesus can take something that's contaminated and make it clean. And you know what? He started with you. Just to prove his point, he started with you. Look at Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish. You are now free from accusation. You know what the Thomas translation of this is? You were pretty gross at one point. Real gross. And no one wanted to even get close to you. And in that moment, Christ came near. When nobody else would, Jesus came close to you. And though he came close to you, he took your crickets out, he emptied the bedpan out, he cleaned it up, he cleansed it, he made you perfect and whole and holy and beautiful and free. You've got to start with yourself because remembering the mercy that you have received is the only way you will start to extend that mercy out to others. 
Think about when you see a homeless person or, or someone asking for money on the street. Most of us chalk it up like, ah, that lazy, poor person. That's sacrifice. That's not mercy. How do you offer mercy? Well, you kind of put yourself in those shoes. If you've ever had to beg for money or ask for a meal or sleep in a shelter, you have a very different perspective on homeless people. So we have to understand we have received more mercy than anybody else. Maybe this week, read Colossians over and put your name in the text. I, Thomas, was alienated from God. I was an enemy because of my evil behavior. I was gross because I did this and I thought this and I acted in this way. Ew, Thomas, yuck. But then Christ, and he cleansed me. But don't ever remember how gross you were. And then I want you to speak out against this stuff. I want you to, to speak of Christ's cleansing power to somebody this week. Just tell somebody, you know what? Christ can make anything clean. We had this weird cricket analogy in church. Didn't make a whole lot of sense, but it was kind of funny. So anyway, tell somebody this week, Christ can clean things. He can cleanse things. He can decontaminate. Tell somebody this week of his cleansing power. And there's that second truth, right? We combat that second lie that if we get too close to something that's contaminated, we will become contaminated. Again, Christian, we speak out against that. Now, I know this is going to be weird to say in church, but, but there are people that all of us just are a little creeped out by, right? Each of us has that kind of group of people, you know, don't nudge the person next to you right now. But we all have this creepy group, this group that makes us cringe or upset, Maybe, again, for you, it's the sexually promiscuous classmate, or maybe it's your Mormon or your Muslim neighbor. Maybe it's the people on the other side of the tracks or the other side of the economic scale. But who do you avoid? Who sickens you? Who makes you upset? Because here's the thing. Repulsion and love cannot coexist. Judgment and love cannot coexist. And so you have to come to terms with who do you judge? Who do you hate? Who do you think? You. And maybe this week, maybe draw closer to them. Instead of retreating, maybe draw in. Instead of taking your hand back, maybe extend your hand out. I'm not sure how to combat this, but we got to start, don't we? We've got to overcome the eewee natural tendency that we have and draw in and say, lovely. Big change. So who have you written off? Who do you stay away from? Who do you dismiss? Who are you not serving because you're too busy offering your personal sacrifices? Who do you avoid because you're afraid they're going to contaminate you? And instead, maybe this week, instead of separating yourself from them, maybe you could serve them. Instead of making this a big deal and a big priority, maybe offering mercy to somebody is the biggest deal for you this week. Now here's the thing, real fast as we wrap this up, someone's going to tell me, I know, well, Proverbs says bad company destroys good character, right? And it's easier to pull somebody down than to pull somebody up. If you stood on a table and I tried to pull you up, you'd pull me down. So you see, you got to stay away from sinful people because they'll just drag you down. Don't know why I'm doing it in an old man Texas voice, but... (laughs) Old Texans just always say that stuff, right? <laughs> sorry, 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 little Texas population over here. Now, I get that. I get that. It is, it is easy for, for things to be brought down, but, but here's what I think. Here would be my response to that. It's easy for young people or young Christians to have that happen to them. And here's what we need to do. We don't just throw that out as this blanket statement that that gives us an excuse to never engage with broken, dirty people. How could you possibly do that? We live in it. Jesus says, you're going to be in the world. I'm not praying that you're taken out of the world. You've got to be right in the middle of it. 
So how do you engage that? You've got to keep two groups of people in mind. If you are going to be that stronger person, if you're going to be the person that says, you know what, I'm going to enter into this mess, into this yuck, and I'm going to be a redemptive agent within it, you've got to remember two people. One is the Holy Spirit. You've got to have the Holy Spirit inside of you if you're going to go in and clean up this mess. I mean, this is gross. They don't want to drink these things. And the world's even grosser. Or things that we have to deal with and see and be a, be a part of, it's even grosser. So how do you enter in and clean that up? you got to pray for the Holy Spirit. You need a supernatural power within you that will help you overcome disgust and disease and decay and even death. But guess what the promise is? You can ask and you'll receive him. So pray for the Holy Spirit. Okay, pray for Christ's redemptive, cleansing spirit to be in you so that when you step out in faith, you won't become contaminated, but you will bring the cleansing power with you, okay? The second is you gotta do this in community. Most people use that proverb to talk about one person with 20 other people. Well, how about 20 on 20? Bring the Christian community with you. Jesus sent his people out two by two for a reason. The proverb, let's quote another one if you want to, right? A cord of two strings is pretty powerful, but three will never even be broken. And so we have to understand, if we're going to go out and try to cleanse the world, be Christ to the world, step into contagious, contaminated settings, do it with other Christians. All right, bring some brothers and sisters with you. Surround yourself with others who have the same goal and the same hope. But these teachings, they prove to me, we can no longer stand on the sidelines. Like the Pharisees, we can no longer separate ourselves from the world. Jesus says, you got to get in deep with the world. you got to get messy. And don't ever tell me, once contaminated, always contaminated. And if you get too close, you'll get contaminated. Nothing could be further from the truth. So extending mercy instead of just engaging in worship. Loving those who are dirty and gross and those who we normally retreat from. Believing the greatest way to show love for God is to show love to his children. Turning separation into sympathy. This is our calling as Christians. And when you put all of those up there, drinking this just doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? There ain't no way I was going to. There ain't no way. Back. But let me pray, and if you're thirsty, I'll invite you up. <laughs> God, we want to be like Jesus. We believe that he's beautiful and that he is the best. He's the best life possible, and in him we find our best life. Life that will not only begin now, but actually never end. And so we just want to be like him. And the teaching this morning, his letters, his words this morning are tough to swallow, literally and spiritually. It's hard, God, to engage in the broken, dirty, sinful world. It's, it's hard not to think that somehow their sin and, and the, the contamination that we see all around us will not seep into us and into our church. But God, help us to trust in your spirit. Help us to trust in your power. Help us to trust in one another that when we engage the world, God, you will reverse the trend. You will have a complete reversal of power and flow. And instead of the sick getting onto us, the Savior will get onto them. Help us, God, to believe that through you, we can touch and serve and love and minister to and care for those the world normally shuns and turns away from. Help Christians to be the ones who are right there holding their hands by the bedside, talking through the prison walls. Help us to be the ones who are there, God. We want to be like Jesus. We need your strength to do it. Bless this church now this week and send us out to do these things and maybe even greater things than these. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's been a wonderful morning. Grateful to have you guys. We'll see you again soon.